to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, February 26th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, February 27th. My name is Reese Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's everybody feeling today? I'm doing pretty good. You know, spring is on its way. I can feel it coming. It's cold here, but you know, I'm looking at the calendar. I know it's just around the corner. That's right. You got to stay optimistic. And how are you? I am doing okay. A lot of transitioning, you know, um, but nonetheless, I am well. And believe it or not, the mornings and evenings are still cold in California. So <laughs> yeah, because the sun isn't up or right. I mean, it's up, but it just has that little, you know, it just has that little crisp on it in the morning, I guess. But yeah. Just, yeah. And like, where in California are you? You're I'm in San Diego? Yeah. I'm in Oceanside, which is just a little outside of San Diego. But San okay. Diego is, yeah, the closest city. So I'm actually taking a trip down there tomorrow to visit a friend who lives here. So. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel like I've always heard San Diego is kind of like temperate. Like, it's not super hot the way some people think of California being hot, hot all the time. Yeah. It depends, like, where you are, too, in the city because, you know, the more inland places. Um, obviously have a warmer temperature than things that are close to the water but Mm -hmm. the entire city is close to the water so just think about like living close to the water in New York it's always got a draft you know what I mean so Mm -hmm. that is something to adjust to Emily how's it going it is going okay I am recovering from a uh not super crippling illness but um I am mostly all the way better, which is good. And, you know, but switching that out with my anxiety about Russia and Ukraine. But, um, you know, it, it's been hard. But I've also, like, uh, something I picked up in therapy recently is that, you know, even when it feels like the end of the world, remember that the only thing that's actually the end of the world is literally the end of the world. Um, and until that point, it is not the end of the world. And there's... There is work to be done. So trying to carry that with me today and tomorrow and and into the near future and long future. Okay. Got to keep that positivity. So definitely a good way to look at it. All right. So we've got a great show lined up for you today. For the local news, we'll be talking about homelessness in the NYC subway system, some things that Mm -hmm. have happened in the past week with the mayor, and some changes that are being made to the system by the MTA to hopefully increase safety measures. For our national news story, we have a very interesting, sad story about the governor of Texas asking parents of trans kids to be reported for child abuse. Our world news story is about abortion being decriminalized in Colombia, and we have some good news about the U.S. women's soccer team. So we'll go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. So for this story, I took some information from the Daily. Uh, The first article is called Mayor Adams Says Every Homeless Encampment in NYC Subway Will Be Dismantled. I also have a second piece um, from the Daily The MTA found 29 homeless encampments in NYC subway tunnels earlier this month. And then I'll be moving over to a story from the Times about the subway platform barriers that will be tested in three stations. The author of the first story um, is Michael Gartland and Clayton Geis. 
Mayor Adams on Friday vowed to take down every single homeless encampment in New York City's subway system, arguing they're not only dangerous to the people living there, but also the city as a whole. His words came a day after MTA officials revealed that transit crews and homeless outreach workers found 29 homeless encampments in subway tunnels and another 89 in stations earlier this month. The encampments, officials said, collectively housed more than 350 people. The encampments in the subway tunnels were identified by overnight workers from February 2nd and 3rd. Officials said they were quickly cleared out, but it's unclear what happened to the people after they were removed from the subway. Adams and Governor Hochul are a week into their new initiative to crack down on subway homelessness, which includes pushing some people sleeping in trains and stations to go into shelters or receive mental health treatment. Under the plan, cops will also be more strict enforcing subway rules that ban large carts and require riders to exit stations when their trains reach the final stop. The MTA is also working on its own project led by Jamie Torres Springer, the chief development officer, to keep people out of the subway tracks. So a little background, unauthorized people went onto subway tracks in 1,267 incidents reported in 2021, which is up from 1,094 in 2020 and 1,062 in 2019. According to Torres Springer, 200 people were struck by trains last year and 68 of them died. A majority of people who go onto subway tracks were not were not shoved and did not slip, MTA data showed. It's said that 160 track intrusions in January, I'm sorry, Torres Springer said there were 160 track intrusions in January, and a quarter of, the, a quarter, a quarter of them were by emotionally disturbed people. The MTA has some technology in place to detect when unauthorized people enter the tracks, and officials said they were looking to add more to beef up security. The agency seeks to expand its large use of laser technology and send alerts when someone enters a track, and he's considering hiring a vendor to install thermal detection to help identify unauthorized tunnel dwellers. Every one of the city's 472 stations have been equipped with cameras since last year. And Springer says he wanted to mount high-definition cameras on the front of the subway trains to further monitor the system. The MTA also plans to install platform security gates at three subway stations that will open when, train, when the train arrives to keep people off the tracks. For years... The MTA had resisted calls to install these barriers that were used in subway systems around the globe to block access to the tracks, citing the, quote, special complexities of bringing such technology to a more than century-old system not designed for it. But on Wednesday, more than a month after a woman was shoved to her death in front of the train at Times Square Station, transit officials reversed course and said they would move to test such barriers. Installing the barriers, which are known as platform edge doors or platform screen doors, could be another step to restore confidence. The program at the three stations will cost more than $100 million and will probably not be completed before 2024. The protective doors, which create a barrier that blocks the track area from platforms until the train arrives, are used on many newer subway systems. Train lines and stations in Europe and Asia, including in London, Hong Kong, Paris, Singapore, and Tokyo. They are far less common in the United States, though they are used in some airport shuttle train systems, including the AirTrain at Kennedy International Airport. 
the agency is exploring detection systems that could use thermal or laser technology to signal when a person ends up on the tracks. Platform doors are just one tool available to deal with riders being pushed, falling, or trespassing onto tracks, transit officials say. The agency is hoping that the city's increased police presence could help prevent some people from falling or jumping onto the tracks. It said it will also work with mental health experts on public service announcements and other methods of deterring suicide attempts that will create a new campaign to warn riders about the dangers of being on the track. So that's the end of my uh, recap. Of course, you know, all of these stories were kind of connected in the same article. I guess that's the way they're trying to pose it. But let's break this down for the first part of the story. You know, what's your feedback on how they're handling these homeless encampments? Um, I think that it sounds very backwards. Like, I think that you have to start with why are people homeless in the first place or getting people into a safe space before you destroy the things that they have. Okay. Um, And someone who is already at the point where they might be living in a train station with lots of bags, you know, there's a high chance that that person would be like very mentally distressed, like further than they already are if you just take a bunch of their stuff. Um, The Gothamist did a really good series that was called We the Commuters, and they had a bunch of stories that were about um, issues um, having to do with the MTA. And I really like that they had one where they talked to the people that are responsible for cleaning the stations. And one it stuck out to me that one of the women whose job it is like to clear up debris she's like our orders are we can't like tell people to leave or like do anything like that but like if you see things that are garbage and it's unattended you're supposed to throw it out so like she saw you know there was something that she looked like trash to her she threw it away but then there was a homeless woman who you know had just left the area and came back got upset And she, you know, unfortunately, like she defecated in front of the subway worker. And I thought the reason why I bring that up is because even someone like that who has to deal with those issues firsthand, she was like, I don't blame the person because it's a systemic issue. And like people are not living in that situation because they just woke up and decided that's what they felt like doing. So I'm like, you know, if someone who would then have to turn around and like clean someone else's poop who did that because they were angry, like if they can have compassion and the insight to understand that it's not just about individual actions, then, you know, the people that have more institutional power to help prevent homelessness and keep people from getting to the situation, they should have that same level of compassion, if not more. Because it's not going to solve anything. Like, it's just going to lead to conflict, people getting angry, people probably getting violent, cops getting violent with them. Yeah. And I just, yeah. you know, I, I think it's just not. I saw that headline and I cringed. Yeah. That that's yeah. what they're doing. I agree. You know, just because you kick people out of the subway doesn't mean you're going to, they're going to stay out. You know, if you were in that position, you're going to go where it's warm going to go where you have some sort of protection if you know if you can so it's really and community just, a lot you know people know each other exactly and that that's what stations. 
that's one thing that was interesting to me, like the number of encampments that have gone up in the last year for all of the reasons that we know, you know, with the rent memoratorium that we spoke, spoke a lot about a lot of people um, in the COVID struggle, just so many different reasons for people to have housing uh, insecurity in New York. These encampments are small communities of people that may be dependent on each other. Um, and that's the scariest thing, right? Because once they, you know, it's one thing to say they are going to kick them out of the stations and transfer them over to mental health facilities. But we all know that that second, the trade-off barely happens. It's, you know, it's optional. And then at that point, where are they going to go? They act like a lot of these facilities have space and can accumulate or accommodate. Chances are, if somebody is in that situation, they've probably already been to, you know, maybe a series of organizations. And there are those outliers, you know, that we need to be mindful of people who choose not to do that or are not capable of, you know, taking that help for whatever reasons. But shifting people from spot to spot is really not it. And I feel like they're definitely criminalizing them, even the, the language around how they're supposed to crack down. Yeah, um, it's really dehumanizing. It is. And, and make rules about carts and things of that nature. It's like, come on, you know, you don't have to be homeless to have a bunch of shit to carry around in a cart in New York City either it's scary it's like it was um in 2020 there was a because there has been a ramped up um presence of nypd on the trains for a while now like it's just gotten more intense recently but in 2020 there was a guy um who's unhoused you think he's a hairstylist and he was in the bronx i believe on the train and it was an empty train you know, middle of the night, and he had like something on the seat next to him, and the cops were harassing him, and they eventually like punched this man in the face. It's like it's an empty train. You see a lot of people where you know they have one seat, and then you know if no one is else is on the train, they might have a one bag next to them. It wasn't even like somebody that had a whole bunch of stuff around them, but you know when you have these types of orders, that's the pretext. And then it just right. escalates from there, you know, and then it's your word against their, like they had video and they tried to charge the homeless guy for assaulting the police officer. Like that doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, and like, I, th- I think a lot of times too, I'm sorry to cut you off. Like a lot of times when someone who's unhoused commits an act of violence or lashes out against someone who is not homeless like that gets a lot of coverage but you are also very vulnerable to violence if you are unhoused yourself like there are people that have been like beaten to death attacked you know be just because they exist and they're on the street so you know talking about them as if they are always some kind of threat to other people as if they aren't also themselves often in danger it's really it's not right yeah I agree with you on that. Definitely. There's a lot of problems with the way that they are empowering police again in New York City right now. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that for quite some time. Um, you have any thoughts? You have any thoughts on this the security measures that they're putting at three test stations? Of course, the first one's going to be Times Square. I think that's a good idea and that that's been a long time coming because there's a lot of reasons why somebody can fall in the trap. Remember that man that had a seizure? Yeah. And someone jumped on the track and like held him down so that the train wouldn't kill him. 
Like yeah. you can slip and fall, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're depressed or something, people might think about jumping or someone might push you like all types of things. Can or happen. Pe- people drop things down there, try to jump down and pick them up. You know, I've, yeah. seen, I've seen that happen numerous times. And, you know, I think it's interesting how this system has been completely outdated for so long and they haven't really made any attempts to make it better. Um, these three test stations I'm sure will probably end up being in Manhattan of course not necessarily these other stations where there may be outside or you know more crime may happen just because it's centralized they're going to do that but I you know I don't think I think the fact that they're even testing a pilot instead of in, in implementing a plan for this shows that there is a lack of accountability for people who use the system every day they don't care and they have not cared so this new wave to say oh we're going to inundate the system with all these updates or whatever and it's going to cost us billions and billions of dollars that should have been happened that should have happened so long ago it's probably to the point where one of the reasons that they're you know reluctant to do it is because it's so outdated it may not even the technology might not even work you know because but if you maintain something over time it doesn't have to be a massive overhaul but exactly wait and wait and wait then it seems like this insurmountable thing yeah you know it's a step it's a step, right? When they do this, though, you know, a lot of writers are inconvenienced because they shut down stations and stuff. So we will see how this rolls out. But, um, yeah. you know. Just one, one more thing before we break. There's a very, very good podcast called According to Need by um, 99% Invisible. And they go into depth about um, the crisis of homelessness in the country and also like ways that you know, you can address root causes and also help people currently. And I like that they, they center people that are actually in the situation themselves, like they're telling their own stories and describing what it's like for them. So if you're interested on learning more about that, it goes into like the history, what's currently happening, different programs that are available, some of the flaws with them. Uh, I would encourage you to listen according to need by 99% invisible. Awesome. Thank you for that reference. And with that, we'll go into our first music today, our music break. Uh, This track is by Marvin Gaye and it's called Inner City Blues. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
Bills pile up Sky high Send that boy off To die Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now Jasmine is up with our national news update. Okay, so uh, this information comes from NBC News. The article is entitled, Texas Governor Calls on Citizens to Report Parents of Transgender Kids for Abuse. Um, It was written by Joe Yurkaba. Um, So Texas Governor Greg Greg Abbott is calling on licensed professionals and members of the general public to report the parents of transgender minors to state authorities if it appears the minors are receiving gender-affirming medical care. The directive was part of a letter Abbott, a Republican, sent Tuesday to the Department of Family and Protective Services, calling on it to conduct a prompt and thorough investigation of any reported instances of minors undergoing elective procedures for gender transitioning. Abbott's letter follows an opinion released Monday by Texas Governor General Ken Paxton, which stated that allowing minors to receive transition care such as puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and surgery is child abuse under state law. Paxton issued the opinion after the legislature failed last year to pass a bill 
that would have made it a felony alongside physical and sexual abuse to provide such care to minors. An opinion is an interpretation of existing law. It does not change the law itself, but can affect how it is enforced. In Tuesday's letter, Abbott asked licensed professionals who work with children, including teachers, nurses, and doctors, and members of the general public, with reporting such claims. He added that state law provides criminal penalties for failure to to report such child abuse. Advocates allege that both Paxton's opinion and Abbott's letter are politically motivated, noting that they were released just ahead of the March 1st Republican primary and that both face a crowded field of contenders in their re-election bids. Audrey Perez, policy and advocacy strategist for LGBTQ equality at the American Civil Liberties Union of Texas, said Paxton is trying to distract from the problems plaguing his campaign. He is awaiting trial for a 2015 indictment on charges of securities fraud, and he is under investigation by the FBI over allegations of bribery and abuse of office. Paxton's office did not return a request for comment. There's no court in Texas or the entire country that has ever found that gender-affirming care can constitute child abuse, Perez said. Brian Klosterboer, a staff attorney at the ACLU of Texas, said in a statement that neither the opinion nor the letter have a legal effect and cannot change Texas law nor usurp the constitutional rights of Texas families. But they spread fear and misinformation and could spur false reporting of child abuse at a time when DFPS is already facing a crisis in our state's foster care system. The law is clear that parents, guardians, and doctors can provide transgender youth with treatment in accordance with prevailing standards of care. Any parent or guardian who loves and supports their child and is taking them to a licensed healthcare provider is not engaging in child abuse. It's unclear whether Abbott and Paxton can force the Department of Family and Protective Services and other state agencies to investigate claims of child abuse against the parents of trans kids without passing legislation that changes the law. Over the last year, nearly two dozen states considered legislation that would bar access to some or all gender-affirming medical care for trans minors. Some states, including Texas, considered bills that would have charged parents or doctors who provide transition care with a felony. Only two states, Arkansas and Tennessee, have enacted restrictions on such care for minors, and a federal judge blocked Arkansas's law from taking effect in July. The White House, which has recently stepped up its response to anti-LGBTQ state measures, spoke out against Abbott's directive Wednesday in a statement to the Dallas Morning News. Conservative officials in Texas and other states across the country should stop inserting themselves into healthcare decisions that create needless tension between pediatricians and their parents. Corinne Jean-Pierre, the deputy principal press secretary for the White House, told the paper, no parent should face the agony of a politician standing in the way of accessing life-saving care for their child. Rachel Levine, assistant secretary for health and the first openly transgender Senate-confirmed federal official, added that the Department of Health and Human Services stands with transgender youth and their medical providers. 
Our nation's leading pediatricians support evidence-based, gender-affirming care for transgender young people. Supporters of restrictions on gender-affirming care argue that minors cannot consent to care that includes permanent changes to their bodies. Advocates note that all relevant major medical organizations, including the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Psychological Association say that gender-affirming care is medically necessary for trans youth and is backed by decades of research. The Endocrine Society, an international medical organization for the field of endocrinology, which includes the studies of hormones, said in a statement Wednesday that Abbott's directive rejects evidence-based transgender medical care. Um, The group said medical evidence, not politics, should inform treatment decisions. The government's directive reflects widespread misinformation about gender-affirming care. When young children experience feelings that their gender identity does not match the sex recorded at birth, the the first course of action is to support the child in exploring their gender identity and to provide mental health support as needed. The Endocrine Society added that its clinical practice guidelines recommends only reversible treatments for adolescents like puberty blockers after they have entered puberty. Older adolescents who demonstrate the ability to provide informed consent to partially irreversible treatment and experience persistent gender incongruence can start hormone therapy. The guidelines also recommend delaying surgery until the age of legal majority, which is 18 in most states. Um, So that's the end of that. Uh, You can read the entire thing. Some of it was cut for the purpose of time. Uh, Again, it's NBC News. Texas governor calls on citizens to report parents of transgender kids for abuse. Uh, And just a bit of some positive news, USA Today's Claire Thornton reports that There are five Texas district attorneys that are defying Governor Greg Abbott, and they won't treat gender-affirming care for trans youth as child abuse. Uh, So these are district attorneys that uh, represent more than 5 million people in Texas, including those in the cities of Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Sugar Land, and Corpus Christi. Um, So at least there is some effort to, uh, like, civilly disobey uh, what the governor is trying to do this is messed up um wow i mean i'm a little bit floored at even the idea that someone would say that considering the fact that your parent you know first of all we need to empower our youth to be open and transparent with the people who care and love for them because so many people die in the shadows so many people right die from internal pain because they don't feel comfortable with it don't understand it and the youth at that how it's 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 sad that parents will be even considered in this way when they're trying to help their child uh make it through life make it through this world right you know there's a lot of hypocrisy as well because i'm sure many of these same people would be perfectly okay with forcing a child to go through with a pregnancy to term mm-hmm. as if that's not something that ends people's lives on its own exactly. or permanently changes your body or per- you can't take that back if something has happened to you or you you fall pregnant 
at a certain age and like you have the state forcing you to go through with it, you can't undo that experience, but that's acceptable to force someone through. But, you know, allowing a child to, with the help and guidance of the people that know them best, know the science and love them to do what they need to do to feel safe and to feel secure. That's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, how people respond to themselves when they're going through transitions of any kind, um, you know, not just being transgendered, but in general, any sort of transition from your lifestyle, economical changes, um, neighborhoods, like we go through so many transitions in life in general, we need to feel comfortable and empowered to do stuff. So just having this as a general understanding um, for them conceptually it's just really, it's hard to raise children already, you know, just, just to have this as something that they have to understand, like, oh, well, because this is who you are, whatever, I could possibly be um, punished uh, for helping you. Right. It, oh, it's, it's disgusting. Texas has been on some shit, man. <laughs> they really yeah, have. They're not the only ones. It is, it's horrible. And it is, you know, it's about instilling a climate of fear. Like yeah. you, you want people to be afraid. Because it is, you know, it is like a police state Stasi-like thing where people are snitching on you, reporting on you. Right. And, you know, it, it's just, it's a natural progression from, well, not, let me not say natural. Like, it's a progression from, like, what we were talking about with the types of books that they're coming after and banning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not wanting children to learn comprehensively about uh, sex and gender and stuff in the school system. Yeah. Um, I was I didn't talk about it today, but like there's this um, alleged like so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. It's very yeah, it's violent that. and it's repressive, you know, and it like you're saying, a lot of people die. You know, even if you're not at this point advocating for going out on like physically attacking people, this is killing people piecemeal. Exactly. A little bit every day. And it's it's not acceptable. So. I'm glad to see at least that these district attorneys said that they will not go forward and that they are against what the governor is doing. Cause maybe, yeah. you know, you see that maybe that will give other people the courage to say, no, I won't, I refuse to comply with this. Yeah. Cause these people are on some, they're on some other shit, man. And they're really trying to revert things back to a place that it never even existed, you know? So I right. just, I just, um, you know, prayers up for the families who are, you know, will possibly be affected by this. The parents that are trying to navigate this crazy ass system, um, just raising their kids and helping their kids, you know, be who they are, or whatever else they need to do. Because it's already hard enough. You know, it's already so many right. other things to deal with. And now it's just making the kids grow up feeling like outcasts, like they don't belong. But we've done so much work as people, human beings, I mean, to break down these barriers and build more community around people who suffer, you know. Right. So I'll um, keep an eye out on our social media pages like I will be. Well, I try to do that every week, try to put up articles and things relevant to what we talked about in the show and when possible to link to different resources if you would like to support um, parents and children that are, you know, unfortunately under assault in Texas and in other states right now just because of who they are. So um, keep your eyes peeled, stay vigilant. And yeah, like you said, like sending support to 
everyone dealing with this right now. Have some compassion. You know, that's really what makes the world go round. Um, wow. We're going to go ahead and take our next music break. Yeah. And for our second song, this is Animal Kingdom by Taliba Safaya. We'll be right back. can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now, Emily, what you got on the world news today? All righty. So just FYI, as of recording this, everything with Ukraine and and Russia is currently unfolding. And um, it is a lot. But uh, I actively chose not to cover it for today's story because it is actively unfolding. There's a lot that's probably going to be changing hour to hour, if not day to day. And basically every major news outlet is already covering it. So um, I thought this would be a good opportunity to put a spotlight on something else. And with that being said, uh, the 
I got the information for the story I am choosing to cover from a February 21st New York Times article uh, that has no byline, uh, no author's name, and it's titled Columbia Decriminalizes Abortion. Uh, And I'll be mostly reading directly from the article, just FYI. Um, It explains, quote, Having an abortion is no longer a crime under Colombian law. The country's top court on constitutional matters ruled on Monday in a decision that paves the way for the procedure to become widely available across this historically conservative Catholic country. The ruling by Colombia's constitutional court follows years of organizing by women across Latin America for greater protections and more rights including access to abortion and significant shifts in the legal landscape of some of the region's most populous countries. Mexico's Supreme Court decriminalized abortion in a similar decision in in September, and Argentina's Congress legalized the procedure in late 2020. The ruling means that three of the four most populous countries in Latin America have now opened the door to more widespread access to abortion. It also comes as the United States has been making has been moving in the opposite direction with abortion restrictions multiplying across the country and the US Supreme Court considering a case that could overrule Roe v. Wade the 1973 ruling that established a constitutional right to abortion. This puts Colombia on the vanguard in Latin America, said Mariana Ardilla. Ardila, a Colombian lawyer with uh, Women's Link Worldwide and a part of the coalition that brought one of two cases challenging the criminal- criminalization of abortion. This is historic, she continued, and it means that many women, girls, and adolescents who are risking their lives in unsafe places who were being criminalized will now be protected. The Colombian court's decision decriminalizes abortions in the first 24 weeks of pregnancy It means that any woman should be able to seek the procedure from a health professional without fear of criminal prosecution. It also sets the stage for the Colombian government to regulate the process further. Until now, abortions had been legal only in limited circumstances laid out by a 2006 constitutional court decision. When a woman's health was at risk, when a fetus had had serious health problems, or when a pregnancy resulted from rape. Anyone else who had an abortion or who helped a woman abort, uh, I'm sorry, or who helped a woman obtain one could be sentenced to 16 to 54 months in prison. In Colombia's nine constitutional court magistrates, oh, I'm sorry, Colombia's nine constitutional court magistrates voted five to four in favor of decriminalization. In an interview following the vote, Judge Alberto Rojas Rios, who wrote, co-wrote the ruling in favor of decriminalization, called the decision a symbol of the eternal fight for women's freedom and a step towards self-determination for Colombian women. Abortion rights activists often said that this, that this legal landscape created a two-tier system. Wealthier women in cities could acquire an abortion because they knew how to use one of the exceptions laid out in the law, while poorer women with less education had limited knowledge of how to do so. Prosecutors in Colombia open about 400 cases each year against women who have abortions or people who help them, according to the attorney general's office. At least 346 people have been convicted in such cases since 2006. Nearly all of these abortion-related investigations have been in rural areas involving girls as young as 11, according to researchers with Causa Justa a coalition of abortion rights groups that analyzed government data and filed one of the two abortion cases considered by the court. 
Illegal abortions can be unsafe and cause about 70 deaths a year in Colombia, according to the country's health ministry. A recent survey by the nonpartisan firm Ipsos found that while 82% of Colombian uh, respondents supported abortion in some circumstances, just 26% supported it in all cases. And the court's decision is likely to cause friction as abortion rights activists, policymakers, healthcare providers, and others determine how it should be carried out. The decision cannot be altered by other legal bodies. Uh, Colombia's constitutional court is considered by many legal experts to be more liberal than the country at large, and many recent liberal shifts, including the legalization of same-sex marriage in 2016, resulted from the court's decisions. Alrighty, so that is my world story for this week. Uh, I, it's just such, always such a, I mean, it's great news, um, you know, abortion is a medical procedure and, and in many cases, a medical necessity for the women and, and, uh, the people who choose to seek them. Um, so this is great news for the health and safety of, you know, those women, those people, uh, just a reminder that, you know, criminalizing abortion does not keep them from happening. It just keeps them from happening safely. Um, so that's great news. And it's, it is really just a fascinating juxtaposition that a conservative Catholic country is moving in this direction while the United States again is continually trying to, or many, many factions in the U S are continually trying to restrict those rights of something that's already been in place for 50, almost 50 years. Yes. I saw the news. I think I first saw it on Instagram, like one of the news sources that I follow it's it's good because like as you said you know with a lot of things like when you criminalize something whether it's abortion or like access to like gender affirming care like all sorts of things or sometimes like different types of drug use like all of those things are going to happen regardless like you're just making it so that when people do it they're much more likely to die or get really sick or something like that so Mm -hmm. It's mm-hmm. surpri- I remember I was in Colombia, I don't remember how long ago it was, like it was at least five years or more. And one of the girls that I was, like I was at a language school type thing and one of the girls that was also there was from Holland and she was doing some sort of work like through her college where she was volunteering, like helping like young mothers and she she was a lot younger than me so like I I don't think I would have thought to say what she said but she remembered you know being during her internship or volunteer thing like making a comment about like why wouldn't so-and-so just get an abortion and it was like dead silent people were like whoa Mm. like she kind of forgot where she was Mm -hmm. you know like you're not in like Amsterdam or wherever where that's like a casual or even parts of the United States, like where you say that and it's just seen as like just a normal one of many options Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. it comes to reproductive health. It was really like, whoa, like why would you, of course that's not going to happen. So I was really, I was surprised to see that news story, like knowing that, yeah, there are a lot of um, people who are ideologically opposed. Well, I like what Emily the way you explained it as this is a medical procedure. I think a lot of people leave that part out in discussions about abortion for various reasons. And it is good to hear that it's not being criminalized slowly 
you know, around the world. It's ironic, like still in U.S. that we're still fighting for this shit <laughs> while others are coming to the table to change um, just the whole concept behind it and things of that nature. But definitely a good move anytime, you know, a medical procedure for any person, specifically women, um, is allowed and not criminalized by others. All right. Thank you so much for that story and that feedback, ladies. Emily, what's the good news for today? Uh, and now for the good news. Uh, my, good, my good news story for the week comes from a February 22nd New York Times article by Andrew Doss titled U.S. Soccer and Women's Players Agree to Settle Equal Pay Lawsuit. Under the terms of the agreement, the athletes will receive $24 million and a pledge from the, from the Soccer Federation to equalize pay for the men's and women's national teams. The article explains, quote, for six years, the members of the World Cup winning United States women's soccer team and their bosses argued about equitable treatment of female players. They argued about whether they deserved the same charter flights as their male counterparts and about the definition of what constituted equal pay. But the long fight that set key members of the women's team against their bosses at U.S. soccer ended on Tuesday, just as abruptly as it had begun, with a settlement that included a multi-million dollar payment to the players and a promise by their federation to equalize pay between the men's and women's national teams. Under the terms of the agreement, the women, a group of several dozen current and former players that includes some of the world's most popular and decorated athletes, will share $24 million in payments from U.S. soccer. The bulk of that figure is back pay, a tacit admission that compensation for the men's and women's teams had been unequal for years. Perhaps more notable is U.S. soccer's pledge to equalize pay between the men's and women's national teams in all competitions, including the World Cup, in the team's next collective bargaining agreements. That gap was once seen as an unbridgeable divide preventing any sort of equal pay settlement. If it is closed by the Federation in negotiations with both teams, the change could funnel millions of dollars to a new generation of women's national team players. Uh, the players, uh, oh, quote, and uh, quote, the players long battle with U.S. soccer, which is not only not their only I'm sorry, not only their employer, but also the sports national governing body had thrust them to the forefront of a broader fight for equality in women's sports and drawn the support of fellow athletes, celebrities, politicians and presidential candidates. In recent years, players, teams and even athletes in other sports, ice hockey, Olympic gold medalists, Canadian soccer pros and WNBA players had reached out to the American soccer players and their union to help as they sought better pay and working conditions. I'm sorry, and their union for help as they sought better pay and working conditions. Uh, quote, for U.S. soccer, the settlement is an expensive end to a conflict that had battered its reputation, damaged its ties with sponsors, and soured its relationship with some of its most popular stars, including uh, Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, and Carly Lloyd, who retired last year. U.S. soccer was under no obligation to settle with the women's team. A federal judge in 2020 had dismissed the players' equal, play, equal pay arguments, stripping them of nearly all of their legal leverage, and the players' appeal was not certain to succeed. Yet for that reason, the settlement represents an unexpected victory for the players. Nearly two years after losing in court, they were able to extract not only an eight-figure settlement, but also a commitment from the federation to enact the very reforms the judge had rejected. Uh, quote, the Players Association for the Women's Team congratulated its members and their lawyers 
on their historic success in fighting decades of discrimination perpetuated by the U.S. Soccer Federation. Uh, And that was in quotations within the article. But made it clear that it planned to hold U.S. soccer and by extension the men's team to previous public promises to support equal pay. Moving forward and tying the settlement with the CBA is important for both groups, Cohn said, uh, because we all believe in equal pay and the only way we can get there until FIFA equalizes the World Cup prize money is for the men's team, the women's team, and U.S. soccer to get together and reach an agreement on equalizing it ourselves. And that was the good news. Um, It was a little longer than usual because I thought there was a bunch of really interesting stuff in there, including the fact that the settlement comes after a court basically shot it down, uh, which is cool. You, I feel like you never see that where, you know, it's not, uh, there's many different ways to get to an end, I think is just a good example. There's different ways to protest and to, uh, fight for your rights. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think of, um, there was a podcast I listened to a couple years ago, um, after there was a, there was some talk about the NBA striking, but it ultimately didn't happen. But when there was um, a possibility of that happening and there were a lot of, um, male players that were doing different things like to show, you know, their position on like police brutality and other things on the court, and the podcast was talking about how the WNBA had really been at the forefront of a lot of that action, even though they make way less money than their male counterparts, but they're much more vocal and also like put, you know, they don't just talk about it. Like they will actually take action and like refuse to play like when certain things happen and really stand up for what it is they believe in. But so often in like the public discourse about like activism or standing up for yourself, they don't get talked about, you know, but if it's LeBron James or somebody else, like it's, you know, article after article. So, yeah, it is it is good to see that, you know, they got um, that this turned around like after the court initially struck it down and that they stuck with it because, you know, sometimes I know they make a lot more money than any of us will probably ever see, but it is like a, it speaks to a deeper like cultural issue about, Mm -hmm. you know, equality and um, just who you think is deserving of, you know, the amount of money, like, you know, pay people what they're worth, you know, whether you're an athlete or in a lot of other types of work that might be feminized, like it's labor, like you're putting, you know, you're using your body to make a living, like you should be paid the same way a man would for that. And not only that, like the, you know, the U.S. women's soccer team are like worldwide legendary champs. Right. And the men's U.S. men's soccer team is on the world stage, like nowhere near as celebrated or decorated. Um, Oh, tomato, tomatoes. Huh? I'm throwing tomatoes. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like it really is like the perfect example of, you know, hopefully a correction in understanding like our value system in this country. Like it didn't matter how deck, you know, no one, like no one cares about women essentially is what they're saying. If they're refusing to pay worldwide superstars, you you know, compared to compared to men, they were getting paid just, you know, not as much as what they were worth. So. Yeah. And I remember what, uh, maybe it was basketball players, but they were doing an expose of like this, these are the conditions that we have to work out in or like practice in. And it was so 
it was such garbage compared to what the men got. And they were like, you know, this, and I remember maybe it was my, I have a friend who played soccer growing up and she was really into it. Like talking about like the difference in like the astro turf or just like the actual equipment and things that you have, it will be okay to have subpar stuff for the women or the girls team, but they would never do that for the boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boo. Well, shout out to the U.S. women's soccer team for holding it down, being world champs, <laughs> and not giving up on the fight um, for for equality. Because I remember when they that story was, you know, at the top of the headlines, and it looks how long it's it has taken them. But nonetheless, this shift is definitely a move forward. And uh, shout out to all the women's sports teams out there holding it down in the industry that hates to see us be great. <laughs> yeah i can't run up the block but i i admire what they can do <laughs> exactly superhumans as usual all right guys so that's it for this week's objection to the rule thank you so much for listening you can catch all of our older episodes on radiofreebrooklyn.org or on the radio free brooklyn app or on spotify listen up for more independent brooklyn media our final track of the day is a good Throwback and close out to Black History Month. This is Michael Jackson with Nan in the Mirror. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. I'm gonna make a change for once in my life. It's gonna feel real good. Gonna make a difference. Gonna make it right. As I turn up the collarbone, my favorite winter coat. This wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street with not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see them? like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.